Our help is in the name of the Lord. We may have an earth. Okay, welcome to the School of St. Philip Neri. Uh, over this past year, we've been focusing a great deal on the character of St. Philip Neri and his charism. This is the Jubilee year of Philip Neri. It's the 500th anniversary of his birthday. And so our hope was just to give you a little introduction into his personality, his spirituality, his uh, charisms. So you would get to, as secular oratorians, that you would get to know him a little bit better. And uh, I've been on a little nine-month hiatus here, so I thank uh, Deacon Paul and Brother Peter for taking over for me. And uh, it's a great way to end the Jubilee year for us here in Pittsburgh with two ordinations coming up. Brother Peter will be ordained to the diaconate and Deacon Paul to the priesthood on the 25th. So just a little bit longer. <laughs> and uh, we'll have an extra priest and extra deacon, which will be a wonderful experience for us. Uh, tonight we'll be uh, looking at... Uh, uh, Philip's charism, if you want to call it, I don't know if it's a particular charism, but rather his thoughts on the love of God, or rather the importance of desire in the spiritual life, desire for God. And this always strikes me as something very important in the spiritual life and something that's often neglected, how important that is to bring a certain thirst, a certain hunger for God to our spiritual life that uh, so often we can go about it in a, a mechanical way, especially if we've grown up uh, in the faith, it can become habitual for us. Even the most extraordinary things, going to Mass, receiving communion, can become habit. And so Philip, like so many other saints, taught that we really have to foster a kind of fervency within our spiritual life, that we can never be comfortable with what level we've achieved in the spiritual life, we always have to be striving for greater holiness and sanctity. And so this is what we'll be looking at this evening. And the structure of the evening is just to give you, after the opening hymn, is to give you a little excerpt from the life of St. Philip Neri that captures something of what we'll be talking about here this evening. And then a little reflection from a book called The School of St. Philip Neri. Uh, just a brief reflection, and then we'll try to go through it as a kind of group Lexio Divina, experience pulled apart in order that we can get a clearer picture uh, of Philip and his, and his particular charism. Okay, so I think it's always easier to sing standing, so I'd ask you all to stand at this point, and we'll sing our opening hymn, Love Divine, All Love is Excelling, and then Brother Peter will do the opening reading for us. Love Divine, All Love Jesus, the Lord, all compassion. 
Patriarch, St. Philip Neri, Apostle of Rome. If the fathers for any reason were late in coming to give him communion in his illnesses, the distress he felt was so great that he could not sleep until he had received it. In the year 1577, when he was so seriously ill that the physicians had given up all hope of his recovery, he heard Madden's ring one night <coughs> and, as usual, asked for the communion. Francesco Maria Terugi, who was awaiting upon him, heard this. But he saw that Philip had had no sleep that night, and he was afraid that his devotion and the tears he used to shed on such occasions would destroy all chance of sleep and endanger his life, and so he gave orders that he should not be communicated. But the long delay made Philip suspect the reason, and he sent for Terugi and said to him, Francesco Maria, I tell you I cannot sleep for the desire I have of the Blessed Sacrament. Make them bring me the communion. I shall go to sleep as soon as I have received. <coughs> and in truth, no sooner had he communicated than he began to amend, and in a short time was perfectly recovered. What ordinarily prevented him from sleeping was either his continual application to prayer, or the vehement desire he had of being united with his Lord in the Most Holy Communion. One night, Father Antonio Galonio, when he was communicating him, held the Blessed Sacrament in his hand for some time and delayed to give it to him. But the aged saint, not being able to endure the delay 
and overcome by his desire, turned to him and said, Antonio, why do you hold my Lord in your hand, and do not give him to me? Why? Why? Give him to me. Give him to me. Galonio, perceiving the wonderful affection of the servants of God, could not contain his tears while he was giving him communion. I think it will become clear why I chose this reading in particular here this evening, because it does speak so clearly to us about Philip's ardent desire for the Lord, and in particular when it came to receiving Holy Communion, as you can see, the, the great desire that he had it was also something that kept him from sleep, and this is something that will come up in our, our little reflection here this evening. I have two handouts for you. The first is our booklet with the reading from the School of St. Philip Neri. The other is uh, a Wednesday audience given by Pope Benedict XVI in 2012, right after he wrote his first encyclical, De Deus Caritas Est. And in both of these works, but also in this little letter, uh, he speaks a great deal about the importance of desire, uh, not only in the spiritual life, but for simply being a human being itself. It is essential to our capacity to love and to transcend ourselves, to step out of ourselves and engage the other, and ultimately to engage God. And so if our spirituality in any way seems to cut, cut off desire, then we are going to hobble ourselves, and we should be immediately suspicious of any spirituality that puts that before us. Uh, we're not going to go through the Benedict XVI reading. I'm going to make a reference to a few of his comments in it. I just gave it to you for, uh, for your own use after the group, if you'd like to read a little bit more. Uh, the section here in red print is just my introduction uh, to the text from the School of St. Philip Neri. The title's actually On the Love of God, but as we'll see, he speaks directly to the desire for God in connection to it. Desire for God, a longing for him and his love, is at the heart of the spiritual life. To desire means to have a clear sense of lack and incompleteness. It drives us on in the pursuit of God's love and the pursuit of perfection. The more we desire God, the more we desire to please him. Lack of desire reveals a lack of love and leads to mediocrity. Uh, this is, might not be, sound like anything new uh, to this group. We've talked about this before, that the word uh, desire itself means uh, a sense of lack or incompleteness, that in ourselves as human beings, we are incomplete outside of our creator. God has created us for himself. And it's only by being in that relationship deeply that we come to understand who we are as human beings, who we are in relationship to others, and most importantly, who we are in relationship to God. And so this is why it's so fundamentally important for our understanding of the spiritual life. In fact, the, the catechism, and Pope Benedict makes reference to this in the handout that I gave you, the catechism right, right at the very beginning of the text says, the desire for God is written in the human heart because man is created by God and for God, and God never ceases to draw man to himself. Only God, only in God will he find the truth and the happiness he never stops searching for. And so there is something that we are created with that makes us hunger for something more than ourselves 
we have to look outside of ourselves for happiness, for truth, and, and for love. Uh, as long as we are self-centered, self-focused, we are always going to be impoverished. St. Philip burned with the love of God quite literally. His heart, inflamed by the spirit of love, beat so loudly that it shook the room, and when he drew others to his breast, they were immediately consoled by the warmth of its love. Uh, Philip, uh, if you remember, had his own Pentecost uh, experience, not long before the Feast of Pentecost, uh, a day or so, I think it was, the day that Paul's going to be ordained to the diaconate. But uh, Philip had this experience in the catacombs of Rome where the, uh, he would spend nights in prayer and the Holy Spirit enters into his mouth through a globe, and there's a globe of fire and settles in his heart. His heart expands and uh, he throws himself on the ground crying out to God, no more, no more. He could not take any more of the love that God was showering forth upon him, any more of the Spirit. But this mystical experience in the catacombs had a lasting effect upon Philip and also on his ministry. I've mentioned before, it broke out the top ribs of his chest. His heart had expanded so much, and his heart would beat with such fierceness that it would shake a room. People could hear it beating, uh, but it also would become this vehicle for consolation. When people would come to him for consolation, they would experience something of the divine love and mercy, so he would often draw them to his chest, in particular if they were suffering from great sorrow because of, of their sins. But uh, this desire that uh, the Catechism speaks of and that we see in Philip isn't something that the, the world is necessarily going to agree with, nod in agreement in, uh, insofar as there's a built within us a desire for God, that a great portion of society now would just shake their head and ignore it. But uh, I think for, for us as Catholic Christians, all that we would have to do in conversations would be to point uh, others to human experience itself. And one of the most basic experiences, the love between man and woman, that there is something of ecstasy that is experienced within that relationship, a going out of self when a person falls and love, that they will turn from self to the other. And the more that that love grows, the more it is perfected, the more that the person becomes less self-focused and more focused upon the, the needs of the other. And Pope Benedict says that our goal is to make this exodus, if you will, a journey from the self to the other and ultimately to the discovery of God. So the place for us to begin, if you will, in our evangelization uh, of those who might not have any faith at all is simply to look at human experience, that our relationship with God builds on that fundamental reality of who we are. He engages us as human beings. And so even in our discussions with atheists, that would be the wisest place for us to begin. We don't argue men and women into the faith, but we can speak to them about these fundamental parts of our human experience that will lead them at least to an insight into what we are talking about, even if there is not 
a fundamental agreement there. Philip, Philip's profound wish was that others might be set ablaze, consumed and inflamed by this divine love. We must not be lukewarm, but rather yearn for the sanctity and perfection of the saints to be made manifest in our lives and actions. We must never measure ourselves according to our own judgment, but always according to the divine standard. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's amazing to me at times that how, how rarely we as Christians take Jesus at his word, that whenever he says something like this, we'll often dismiss it as a kind of hyperbole. Uh, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That all these things, because they require so much from us, call us to step away from our own selfish needs uh, and to be conformed not to our own, uh, what our own reason tells us, but to the standard that God has revealed to us. Uh, Instead of embracing that, we will often set it aside as something beyond our, our capacity. But what we see in the saints is this constant call to never be comfortable with things as they are in our spiritual life. If that desire, that fervor for God is not continually growing, we will necessarily move to a more lukewarm state. So there's never a time in our life where we can to rest comfortable. Okay, I'm doing all that would be required of me as a Catholic. Well, until we've reached the perfection of the love of God or of his mercy, that is an impossibility for us. Uh, Benedict, in that little writing, says that part of this exodus, this journey, uh, involves th three aspects, that we would have to cultivate this desire, encourage it, and correct ourselves. And this will become clear, I think, as we look at Philip Neary, that there are ways in our spiritual life that we would, we would use to, uh, if you will, fire the, the flames of our desire for God and, uh, and our piety, that it would be some, something that burns hotly, that, again, we can engage in our prayers and uh, the sacramental life in sort of a passive way or habitual fashion, but what Benedict and what Philip tell, tell us is that we have to seek to warm the heart, as it will, through our uh, pious activities, uh, whether it's saying the divine office or the rosary, the Jesus prayer, Eucharistic adoration, or just these uh, short little prayers that we'll hear uh, that Philip and his disciples would, would say constantly throughout the day in order, again, to stir up that, that love within their within their hearts for God, that we would encourage ourselves and others, that uh, we'll see how Philip and his disciples would seek also to get others to become more inflamed in that desire too. There's one point, as you'll see in the reading, where I think it's one of Philip's disciples says, uh, would that you would be killed. <laughs> and it doesn't sound something that warms the heart, but I think he's... Uh, was yearning, you know, in these beautiful basilicas, or in, I think it's St. Peter's, the writing actually says, that such fervency would be within the hearts of the believers, that they would have a longing to witness to Christ in such a way that they would 
be willing to be martyred for, for him. Uh, and also to correct ourselves that you know, when we see the times that we grow passive in the spiritual lives, that we would make use of spiritual direction, confession, uh, to acknowledge that, that lukewarmness and acknowledge it as frankly as we can uh, in order that those who uh, are in our charge, those who guide us, would help to spur us on uh, along the path of faith. He also says that uh, we would need to develop a kind of pedagogy of desire. And this sort of struck me in Benedict's writing, that we need a kind of instruction in how it is that we would foster desire beyond the ways that I've mentioned uh, in a regular kind of way in our teaching of, of children through adults. And he just mentions two in that little uh, Wednesday audience. The first is a taste for authentic joy that so often in our culture uh, today we feed ourselves on things that really don't give us a lasting joy or peace. They might help us escape the difficult realities of life for a certain period of time, but uh, in the end, uh, they, they leave, leave us almost more impoverished. And there's always a danger when that happens, when we are turning constantly to worldly entertainment, that we dull our sense of taste. We, don't, we lose that taste for things that are truly joyful. And uh, the more that we are, impoverish ourselves in that regard, uh, the more starving we become for true joy, the more we're going to turn uh, for mere shadows of it. Uh, I think I've mentioned before that a starving man has no sense of taste, that he'll gobble down anything that's available just to feed himself. And I think you could see that in our, our culture. The further it moves away from God and this authentic joy that we would have in our relationship with him, the more ravenous it becomes for different kinds of inter entertainment and the more outrageous in order to try to fill that void. Or consumerism, you know, to find the, the newest gadget or the newest kind of car, anything uh, to, to fill that, that void. And so to teach ourselves uh, to have a taste for authentic joy would actually mean setting many of those things aside and even dealing with the discomfort that that would bring us, simplify our lives in order that we might pursue the things that bring a lasting joy. And that, again, might be deep prayer, retreats, adoration, uh, and other kinds of devotion that that's what we would develop a taste for over time. And immediately it's not going to taste very good to us and in some ways it can't compete with what the world offers or seems to offer in abundance. That there's con this constant flowing out to us of new things, new and better things that excite the senses. And so to, to be able to step away from that can be a very challenging Thing for us, and few, the few of us are willing to do. Think about even just television for a moment. Nice whoopee cushion movement there, Father. <laughs> 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 television, for example, that it, it, you know, in my mind, 
I think is the thing that's most seductive and often seems most innocent to us because it allows us to, uh, to veg out and to uh, seemingly feed our minds and our imagination uh, in such a way that we can escape the, the heavy realities of our day-to-day -day life and, and work. And so we will return to that over and over again as a, a means of satisfying ourselves. And I think I've said this before that you know, people have no question about turning on the television and sitting before for two or three hours a day, if not longer. Uh, same thing with the computer. But when it comes to spending two or three hours in prayer, you know, eyebrows go up. That's extreme. One couldn't possibly think uh, of doing that, or I'm too busy. How could I pray that much? But when my favorite television show is on, I can, I can run to that quickly. So, uh, taste for authentic, authentic joy. The second is never being content with what is achieved. That uh, the striving uh, for holiness or to walk along that narrow path has to be something that we always keep before our, our minds. And again, this isn't an easy thing. As you remember, the word strive comes from agon, from which we get our name, or get our word, our name. <laughs> little Freudian slip there. My name is agon. <laughs> which we get our, the word agony. And so to strive to enter by the, the narrow way means to really, that this would be the thing that we would be most anxious about in our lives. Anxious in the sense that we give uh, the most attention to it. If our love for God, our desire for God, our desire for pe perfection in the holy life is the thing that we desire the most, then every day it's going to be the thing that we are going to be most anxious to attend to. And the reading that we heard from St. Philip tonight talks about his inability to sleep. So ardent was his desire uh, first to receive Holy Communion, but he couldn't rest when he was ill. And then uh, prayer would often be something that would keep him from sleeping, that it would stir such an ardent longing for God that he could not let himself break away from contemplation to give himself the necessary physical rest, to the point where he had to beg God, please let me sleep. And it wasn't because of insomnia, it was because of this deep desire that he had for the Lord. Uh, and then finally, Pope Benedict talks about um, on this journey uh, or this exodus from self toward God or the discovery of God, man is restless, he's a seeker, and finally he's a beggar before God. And th this is often, again, a difficult thing, not simply for uh, non-believers, but for, for believers to see ourselves as beggars before God that we are dependent upon God for our life, we are dependent upon his grace uh, to live the holy life, uh, and we're dependent upon him in every way, and to live with this sense of our absolute poverty uh, is very difficult, and I think that's why people, people will often uh, move away from prayer. Uh, there's uh, one author who describes prayer as the dregs of poverty, because it means that we step away 
from doing what the world sees as important to doing what the world sees as absolutely meaningless in order to bring ourselves before God because we know that he alone can provide us with that grace. And to do that means that we have to acknowledge in a very uh, deliberate fashion our fundamental need for him and our, our poverty. That we will ne our work will never, even if the world uh, showers upon us accolades, that our, our work will never bear fruit, lasting fruit, unless it has behind it the grace of God. And in a culture that worships those who have certain abilities, whether they be physical, intellectual, or if they have, uh, they're people of means, great money, you know, that often that will cloud our vision, thinking, okay, these are the movers and shakers in the world, those who have accomplished great things within their life, when in reality, uh, the, the person that has the greatest power and effect upon all of those around them can be the poor person who's a deep prayer. One person in a family can shape that entire family dynamic if they are a deep prayer. Saint Seraphim of Seraph said, uh, one who has achieved peace with God will convert thousands. That simply living in that peace of Christ through living a holy life is what will bring about the conversion of others. So evangelization begins not with our abilities, our talents, our capacity to teach. It begins with our intimacy with God. How do we speak of God unless we know him and know him in more than an intellectual fashion? Our words will never cut to the heart of others unless they come from that relationship with him. Okay. Anything just from the introduction or what I've said so far that you might like to comment on or have clarified? All filled with desire? <laughs> okay. Crickets. Father, I've been reading a little bit about um, St. Peter, and one line that keeps coming back to me is uh, when Jesus said, cast off into the deep. And I think that really relates to desire. And then I'm at the point, I try to get to that point, and uh, I think it all ties in together. Right, to, to live our lives in the deep in general, not in the shallow waters, but to put out in the deep in regards to our relationship with God, our desire for Him, and our prayer. And, you know, on the surface, things are often very rocky. And it's only when we are in that deep, you know, when we immerse ourselves in the love of God, that things begin to level off us, that so we can go through chaos and yet not be moved by that. So much so that a lot of saints will say that, the, that if we have any anxiety at all, then we are still not detached from the things of this world, that we're clinging in some way. That our faith should be such that whatever comes to us, that we are confident in God, that it comes to us for a reason. And so we still might have to work hard, we might have to engage in that reality but it should be with peaceful mind, minds and hearts. The, moments that, the moment that we're stirred to anxiety, to fear, shows us that there's something there that we need to correct or part of our prayer life that we have to deepen. 
Any other thoughts, comments? All right, well, we move on to the text itself. Before beginning, uh, Pope Benedict in that, in his address, had a little quote from St. Augustine that I thought would be good to share with you. And he talks about desire and, and how God makes it grow within us. And he says, so God, by deferring our hope, stretched our desire. By desiring, he stretches the mind. By stretching, makes it more capacious. That means makes it more roomy, if you will, that by allowing us to be, as it were, subject to, to futility in this world, allowing, having to put off our hope uh, for that experience of, of union and communion with him, it also provides the opportunity for our, our desire to be deepened, the, the, that he holds off that full union in order that our desire for him might grow. And it seemed to me to be an important thought in the spiritual life because we often will get frustrated without the immediate results of prayer life. The, the thought that our spiritual disciplines might not bear fruit for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. That uh, uh, the thought of doing Lexio Divina, reflecting upon the scriptures in a, a deep way or engaging in adoration, you know, that we might often want to experience this deep consolation and intimacy with God, or by reflecting on the scriptures, we would want to have these, these deep insights. And that's not how things in our relationship with God develop, that it's often uh, through the growing of that desire, that longing for him and the truth, that that begins to be made manifest uh, through our lives and also through things like sharing in his cross that we gain insight into those mysteries by participating in them, by in, engaging in them fully, pouring ourselves out, allowing ourselves to be broken and poured out for others, experiencing something of, of the cross in our lives. This is how we can speak of it clearly to others. Yes? I think it's good. It may be helpful, too, to keep in mind the, the, the goal of desire, which is uh, it's actually knowledge. But not, not just knowledge like the academic sense of like knowing about, but uh, knowledge that's for it, like equal to something like union, like the biblical knowledge between like a husband and wife. There's a knowledge there. Um, so desire aims for union. That's why we, that union is expressed through knowledge. Vita um, vision is, it is a, uh, it is a, the union, it is a, uh, you know, the, the filling of your mind with the space that was created through that desire. And that that process of desiring and having that desire grow actually allows for the greater reception of the gift. And in this case, a supernatural gift of God himself and the union with him in heaven. Right. That's where Augustine's words are powerful, that it stretches our desire and actually give us, gives us a greater capacity to love and desire God. So we don't want to rail against that experience, but allow it to form and shape us, trusting that God is actually calling us on to a deeper love. Anything else? Or we'll move on to the text. Okay. The love of God, which is the foundation and the root of all virtues, was found in such a preeminent degree in St. Philip that the flame which consumed his soul was visible even in his body, so that sometimes when he was saying the office 
or after any other spiritual act, sparks of fire were seen to issue from his face and eyes. He desired that the hearts of others should also be inflamed with his divine love, and sometimes expressed such wishes as these. May St. Anthony's fire burn you, by which he meant to express a wish that the person, like St. Anthony, might glow with divine love. So, you know, in Philip, it was often commented that, you know, in the look in his eyes and his posture, certainly in the beating of his heart, that one could see this desire for God and the love of God being manifest through him in a physical way. He would levitate while saying Mass at times that that should not in some way be surprising to us, even if it's not the norm, that those would be extraordinary events. But uh, as human beings, it's our whole self that is involved in that relationship with God and our whole self that is transformed by the grace of God. There's a wonderful story from the Desert Fathers that I uh, often bring up, and it seems fitting for this too, that uh, one of the elder monks was asked by a younger one you know, what he must do to grow in holiness. That, and the elder monk said to him, well, keep all the commandments and the rules of the monastery. And the young monk says, well, I've done all these, these things. I've kept them to perfection. And then in the next moment, the old, uh, old monk holds up his hands and he says, why not become all fire? And all of his ten, ten fingertips turn into flames of fire. And it might seem to be uh, uh, sort of a wild story for us, but I think it captures something of the deeper truth of, uh, that we see in the transfiguration, that Christ in his glorified state, we, we see how that transforms his visage. You know, his very appearance has changed completely. And uh, why wouldn't we also see that within the, the saints, that there would be something changed about them, whether it's their demeanor, their look, or things extraordinary, as there, there was in the case of, of St. Philip. And it's not that we would cling to that or necessarily yearn for that to be made manifest in our lives, but it can be something that I think stirs us on uh, in our pursuit of holiness uh, and to pursue it with our full selves. Again, not to allow that desire for God, the love for him, the pursuit of holiness, to be an intellectual reality alone, uh, notional, that our whole being is to be involved in that relationship. And so that does involve things like fasting, vigils, engaging in adoration, prostrations, you know, doing all the things that we would want to do in order to strengthen our will and live a life of, of purity. Anything in the first paragraph stand out? Yes. I just have a question. Okay. Might be a little stupid, but um, is he when he's referring to you know may the fire of Saint Anthony burn you? Like why is he referring to somebody else like another saint? Like um, is he just being humble? Like he doesn't mean obviously people around him saw that he's doing. Right. He's not going to point stuff. to himself. Right. And you know Philip is an admirer of the Desert Fathers and. You know, St. Anthony would have been seen as one driven by this love and desire for God, so much so that he leaves the world with all of his belongings and goes off into the heart of the desert to live this rigorous life. And so it becomes an apt model then 
for one who has an ardent desire. So may St. Anthony's fire burn you, you know, that may you be set aflame as he was, so much to leave, be willing to leave everything in the world for the pursuit of God. Yes? I was going to bring this up later, but I think sometimes, too, there's a translation issue with the Italian. Mm -hmm. Like, if it says, like, here it says St. Anthony's fire, but it's probably like the fire of St. Anthony. And that sounds like it's possessive. It sounds like it's saying St. Anthony's fire. That's his fire. But the same, well, it's, probably more, it's probably more like the fire that, you know, uh, St. Anthony was burned with, burning with. Right. Yeah, that, that's oh, what's going I for. think that's why the author makes that clarification. Yeah. You know, well, it might glow with the divine love. Because there, there, I think there was in history this disease called ergotism, where, like, uh, a grain would get mold on it. And then it would produce hallucinations in people and all these, you know, wild behaviors. And uh, I think it was believed that they were cured through a saint. I don't know if it was through St. Anthony or not, but I think that people will often get these too confused. Interesting. But uh, we don't want, it's not, that's not what he's talking about here. Well, may you become, may you have hallucinations. <laughs> well, interesting thing, when I, when I first saw this chapter in the School of St. Philip, uh, I thought that, I, I read on the love of God, to mean on God's love, mm -hmm. not our love for God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that confused me. And uh, I remember like coming across, there's a litany to obtain the love of God. Mm -hmm. like, we are, God already loves us. I'm not sure what's, what's well, right. how do we need to obtain it? Right. Isn't that Pelagianism, what's going on? Right. And it was my misreading of the... Uh, well, I think uh, that's why out. focusing more on desire yeah. is more, more helpful to us here, to be a little bit more specific about not only Philip Neary was talking about what, but Benedict in that uh, little address that this is what, you know, God has a desire for us and it's, you know, to be met by our desire for him and must be as unending and unconditional. Okay. I'm not sure, is it, do you say that Julio? How do you say the first name there? Does anybody know? Is it Julio? Julio. Okay. Ravioli. And it's supposed to be Savioli, not Ravioli. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you see where my, what my state of mind was when I was looking this up. <laughs> it was probably Julio Ravioli. <laughs> Since he was inflamed by this heavenly fire, desired that all others would glow with the same divine love. This is what he meant by saying when he went to St. Peter's, where he frequently went, when, when shall I see this great place, palace burning? Fire, fire. The Holy Master said to others, may you be killed, that is, for the faith, by means of holy martyrdom. And again, you know, I think we can only understand this in the context of our own spiritual life. If, if that relationship with God is the priority. If we wake up in the morning with our first thoughts turning to God and how it is that I can please God this day or what I need to avoid and certain sins in my life, all the things that I would want to do to, to please the Lord, then we can begin to understand uh, words such as this, you know, may you be killed or uh, may this place catch on fire. That should be our desire here at the oratory too. That 
know, people would catch fire through, especially through the adoration in the chapel, that by gazing upon love himself, that they would be set afire, that they would experience kind of Pentecost in, in their own life. So great was the progress made in the love of God in the school of St. Philip that even some members of the external oratory were inflamed by it. Martin Altieri, a Roman nobleman, one of St. Philip's children, like another Moses, could not speak of God from the overflowing of his love. So, you know, comes to know such an intimacy with God that it is beyond words, that he's, as it were, struck dumb. And we find this in saints as they seek to write about contemplation, that once they get to that point of speaking about union with God, language breaks down that the uh, only response to the word, or eternal word that God speaks to us is silence. You know, it's, and it's only this kind of eternal silence wherein we can grasp what God speaks to us in all of its fullness. And so you know, there should be, as it were, a, a love for silence and a desire to cultivate it in our lives if we're also going to experience something of this deep desire, as long as our minds are flowing with the things of this world and even our own pious thoughts, it prevents us from simply entering into that silence where there can be this deep encounter with the Lord. And so don't, don't be afraid of silence when you're in the chapel, as difficult as that can be at times. You know, we have a tendency to read or lose ourselves in a book rather than simply allowing ourselves to, to gaze upon the Lord and to be drawn more and more deeply into the silence of his love. In exciting ourselves to this holy love, it will be useful to reflect that our Holy Father, though rich in merit, when he saw young persons, considered that they had time to good, considering that they had time to do good, used to say, happy are you who have time to do good, which I have not done. Uh, it's, Reminiscent of uh, Augustine's exclamation, late have I loved you, that you know, Philip was keenly aware of uh, even the small moments in his life that he let go by where he could have done good or been focused upon God. And those moments aren't regained. We can't regain those moments. Every moment for us is freighted with destiny because it's this opportunity to love God or not to love him, to be focused upon ourselves. And so you know, as Philip grew in sanctity, he also grew in a sense of, of the urgency of life, that we don't want time, the most precious thing for us in this, in this world, to slip through our hands. Yes? How are we to understand that the phrase, um, exciting ourselves to this holy love? Because to me, it sounds, when you say exciting yourselves, it, the image I have is uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, where the uh, false prophets, they were exciting themselves in order to call down fire from heaven, and it didn't work for them. Uh, and so what's, how do we understand that? Uh, like, is that something, is the initiative on our part in order to increase in desire? What does that look like? How do we nuance that with, uh, like, so it's not Pelagianism? Or, 
or just right. a kind of raw enthusiasm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, and Philip was often wary of that, that there is an effective part of the spiritual life that is essential, that we would want to stir our desire for God. Uh, but we don't want to fall into a kind of enthusiasm where we're simply whipping up the emotions uh, in order to alter our mental state. And that's a common thing, I think, in our day, you know, to create this spiritual ecstatic state, to pull us out of our, our minds, as it were, and almost, as it were, to create an encounter with God. And that can be a very dangerous thing, because one can fall into delusion, thinking that that relationship with God is fervent, or it is deep, where it's actually something that we've created on our own. So I think when he, what's the wording here again? Exciting ourselves. To exciting our, where, where are you looking? Beginning of the oh, in exciting ourselves to this holy love that he would say, you know, through certain forms of prayer, you know, saying the divine office, you know, going to mass, adoration, the rosary. You know, we were reading recently Jonathan Robinson's book on the embodied mysticism of Philip Neary, that his mysticism arises out of his participation in the life of the church, in particular the sacramental life. This is the, where one fundamentally experiences the greatest encounter with God and his grace. And we have this tendency to focus on the extraordinary or on the emotions and uh, things such as that, where I think we need to be more focused upon where it is that we encounter God and seek to foster that kind uh, and excite that kind of desire for him that leads us on to deeper faith. The other, I think, makes us and then more self-centered and self-focused. And you know it by its fruit. You know, it's that typically when it's something that we create on our own, it doesn't produce fruit for the kingdom, repentance, or fruit that endures. Enthusiasm could be short-lived. Any other thoughts? Let us first endeavor ever to have fixed in our mind that maxim of the saint, the repetition of which can never be superfluous, that whatever love is given to creatures it is so much taken from God. And let us practice the instructions given us on the subject by the Holy Master, which are as follows. So we always, again, want to develop that taste for an authentic joy. And it's not that we can't have joy and love for others, attachment, say, to others in this life. And that can be a beautiful thing, but often we will make it an end in itself. There can be a kind of self-idolatry there, or even an idolatry of others, or of the things of this world. And in so much as we give the love that is proper to God to those things, then uh, we're not loving the Lord as we should. So Philip says, desire to do great things for God's service, and not be content with mediocrity and goodness, but wish to surpass even St. Peter and St. Paul in sanctity, though it may be unattainable, ought to be desired, since we may, at least in desire, perform what we cannot do in fact, 
never be contented with any degree of perfection to which you may have attained. For the pattern which Christ places before our eyes is the eternal Father himself. Be thou therefore perfect, as also your heavenly Father is perfect. No one must ever imagine that he has done any good. The Holy Father himself thought laden with merits when he confessed, was wont to say with abundance of tears, I have never done any good. And so here, he, St. Philip and Benedict are on the same page that uh, one of the, it's not only developing this uh, taste for authentic joy, but never being content with the level of sanctity that we've achieved. And here we have St. Philip, who was known to be a holy man, uh, having a clearer, clearer and clearer sense uh, of himself of, as never having done any good, that he knew his own, own poverty and how easily he could betray God. That uh, This little phrase has often been attributed to many saints, but it actually originates with St. Philip Neri. Uh, uh, there, by the gra uh, there by the grace of God go I, that whenever he would see someone who had fallen into a great sin, that he knew that in his lesser moments, or if he had turned away from God in any capacity, that he was capable of doing the same vile things. And so he would never be able to look upon anyone except with mercy, knowing his own capacity for such sin. So it's not just a pious statement. I think we would have a tendency with saints to dismiss something like this. Well, oh, they're just being humble. They just have to say that because they're so good. Uh, but uh, the, the clarity of their faith makes them see even more clearly the poverty of their sin and their need for God's mercy and grace. Okay. Any thoughts about that? Yes? One thing that uh, struck me when he says, you know, that we should all desire to be, to surpass even St. Peter and St. Paul. I guess that, that means to desire to be, you know, to emulate them in holiness, but not necessarily like uh, desire to have like sparks coming out of our eyes. <laughs> you know, right. all these, you know, extraordinary. Uh, I, I just finished reading the, the book, uh, The Embodied Mysticism of St. Ordinary. Right. It was interesting how, you know, it covers the subject how, like, if mysticism is for, is a gift given this a mystic for the benefit of others. Okay. Like it's not something that we should be desired to be levitating. Or, right. Or maybe you will be someday falling. No, <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, not the bullet you I can barely get myself across the other side of the room by walking. <laughs> levitating is a stretch. But, you know, I think what we see in, in Paul and Peter are not these extraordinary <laughs> either. I mean, what we see in them is this deep faith in their uniting of themselves with Christ and the cross. I mean, Peter was stoned, whipped, shipwrecked, left for dead, and Peter was you know, crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. So you know, what we desire is to spread the gospel with as much fervor as they did, as well as a willingness to, to suffer for Christ. And the thing that's striking to me is that he's not afraid to say that we sh should want and desire to have 
a greater sanctity than, than them, or as great a sanctity as the, the saints. And it seems to me that previous generations would hold up the saints, you know, in the preaching at masses and just in children's formation, that they would be exposed to the lives of the saints more regularly than now, as some, not as a model to be embraced and pursued, that you know, the way we grow in, in, uh, in holiness is through imitation. You know, even Paul says, it, you know, be imitators of me. You know, it seems like a strange thing to say, but, you know, he's calling them on to, not this Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Although that would be an okay thing, too. <laughs> yes, Father. Our campus, Lambert Riley, has a talk uh, tracing the, the expressions of humility of, of St. Paul uh, from, and even corresponding to the likely dating of, the, of his letters from when he says that he is the least of the saints to a later letters where he says of the sinners he is the foremost of sinners. Right. <laughs> so uh, that, even that tradition of, of, of but quite sincere expressions right. of one's own lowliness right. uh, goes back to, uh, to St. Yeah. Paul. Yeah. So imitate their humility would be another, another thing. I have a Jesuit professor who uh, uh, expresses this, that the heart of Paul is the heart of Christ, that we can get insight into the most sacred heart of Jesus by, by, because St. Paul imitated uh, in Christ, we can see greater unfoldings of expression also about the heart of Christ. Right. It's interesting to look at like the sanctity of Mary that has also been perfectly shaped by humility, that she can say, my soul magnifies the, the Lord, that there's like a kind of holy boldness there, that she could, could see what God, the great thing that God had done in her, and so she could point to that without there being a, any kind of pride in it, that he used, you know, that it's in its reversal that that becomes magnified to the world, and I think we shy away from this, but I think one of the reasons that we shy away from it is our lack of willingness to embrace the life that they lived, not real humility. So. Okay, where am I here? We must thoroughly bear in mind what the saint said, that perfection cannot be acquired without great labor. Therefore, in the ways of God, we must always urge ourselves from good to better. And so it is, again, something, as Benedict says in the audience, that we have to cultivate, that there is, a, again, a, a striving, a discipline that we have to engage in, asceticism, which means exercise. We have to exercise our faith in such a way that we are able to overcome our passions, our sinfulness, and, and grow in the virtues. And this isn't something that we can be half-hearted in our pursuit of that, or, or certainly lukewarm in our, our pursuit of it, that we have to be in it fully in order for there to be true growth to take place. And w again, if we just look at human experience, we see that in every other area of our life where there is a kind of pursuit of something we love. If we are a musician, there's going to be uh, hours of practice, lessons, athletes, same thing, hours of practice, uh, training, change of diet, uh, 
uh, an academic, you know, years uh, of study, research, things such as that. And again, the world does not hesitate at that kind of uh, giving of oneself over to that pursuit. And so what should we think about Christians and our pursuit of the holiness of the gospel? That the, the zeal that we would bring to that should be greater than anything that we, we bring to our, our worldly pursuits. To obtain from God his holy love, the following ejaculations of St. Philip should be familiar to us. When shall I love thee with a filial love? O Jesus, be to me Jesus. I do not love thee. O my Lord, grant me grace to love thee, not from fear, but from love. O my Jesus, I desire to love thee. I have never loved thee, but I desire to love thee, O my Jesus. I shall never love thee, except thou help me, O my Jesus. O my Jesus, I desire to love thee, but I know not how. And so, to form the mind and the heart to have this desire by the, the frequent recitation of these longings uh, within us, and not to allow our minds simply to wander throughout the day, to develop a kind of watchfulness of mind and heart and an unceasing prayer. Uh, so you would often find the saints repeating these things over and over again, even to the point where you would see their lips moving as they, they would be saying them as they're walking along or engaged in their activities. So to form and fashion the heart, to train the heart to constantly be calling out to God. And again, with all of our distractions, this can be uh, a very difficult thing, you know, with our nose buried in the computers and Often our work these days doesn't allow for that state of recollection. And so our generation has to find a new way, I think, where we can begin to foster this and move to sort of the complexities from the complexities of our life to greater simplicity that allows this kind of recollection. Father Pietro Consolini was also in the habit of asking for divine love by ejaculatory prayer. He frequently implored it by the following ejaculations. Wound my soul with a greater love of thee. Strike hard uh, my soul with love of thee. Create a clean heart in me, O Lord. O Lord Jesus, be the most sacred mystery of thy body. And by thy five wounds from which the blood which thou hast shed for me didst flow, have mercy on me according to thou, as thou knows my necessities of soul and body. Receive me according to thy word, that I may live, and disappoint not my hope, but take pity on me, O my mercy. This he uttered with the most ardent emotion, when the sacred host was elevated by the celebrant, and this... Thou art my help and my refuge. O oh my God, I will hope in thee. So again, a similar thing here, that we would, um, again, at Mass, when we, when we think about full participation, it's not that everybody's engaged in what's going on in, up at the altar, helping out 
serving. It's that we are fully engaged in the reality that's taking place at the altar. We're at the foot of the cross. We're receiving the gift of God's own self. And so there should be welling up within our hearts uh, a, a desire for the gift that we are about to receive. And same thing when we get to the chapel before Mass, uh, not to, to sit there and let our minds wander or talk to the person next to us or read the bulletin, but again, fostering this kind of desire for what we're about to enter. Yes? It, it seems that uh, it's good to, not to think of like the desire and the love for God to be just like, God, you're great, I love you, but to actually have like images of God, you know, mm -hmm. to uh, like engage... Uh, like the memory of the church to to look back, you know, here it says the, the five wounds. And the, right. Like meditate on the passion. Right. What are you thinking? Uh, what do you want? If you want to excite the love of God, maybe just call to mind the full significance of every single thing He did for you. And then by doing that, your heart will follow, follow suit. Right. When you realize the, the depths of His love for you, like you can't help but be moved sometimes. So like that's like the idea of incorporating. Uh, the memory of the church, incorporating your own memory, the way that God works in your own life, these things are like enliven the prayer. It's not just a, like a, God, you're great, I love you, but like, God, you, you died for me. Right. You know, and like the immense torments, you did all that for me. And so that, that, that's like a good, I don't know, because otherwise no, it just seems I, too I think uh, it's perfect. esoteric. And it's perfect, and I think also when we think of the new evangelization, this is what it should be. This is where we should be leading people in order that they develop that desire, deeper desire for God. The problem is, is that so many of the devotions that we've had as, as Catholics have been cast, cast aside. The very things that would stir that desire for God have become so episodic that many people have never experienced them. I, I'm sure there are Catholics that have never experienced the Stations of the Cross. And I know for certain there are Catholics that have never experienced a 40 hours devotion or, or Eucharistic adoration, never knew that it ever existed because it hasn't been practiced at all. And you think these are the things that really do stir that desire and pull us more and more deeply into the mysteries. So blessed Columba Marmion, have you, are you familiar with him and his writings? Brilliant man, but every single day he prayed the stations of the cross, every single day of, of his life. He sought to enter into the deepest mysteries of our faith. Father Fred, yeah. There's a devotion for a private recitation of the rosary to take each mystery and insert a little phrase after the name of Jesus, one of the, but for some for a public recitation, but to do something like uh, by whom Jesus who was scourged for love of me, right. who was crowned with thorns for love of me, right. and just impress that on the heart right. more and more. Right, uh, to personalize it, right. And Father Paul Wool, though, would take it even as uh, his favorite kind of aspiration was just to repeat, O love, O great love, O infinite love of God. Right. And he said he knew men and women who became uh, holy simply by like repeating that, that, right. that again and again. And with potentially with the background of, of, of content of specific thoughts, which is kind of like the antiphon to right. reflecting. Right. Okay, signs of advance in the love of God. Whoever wishes for a sign, whether he be advanced in the love of God, may find one given by the Holy Father Philip in these words. When a soul is truly enamored of God, it cannot sleep at night, 
but passes the time in tears and sighs and tender affections and is constrained to say, O Lord, suffer me to sleep. He indeed often experienced this, for frequently when contemplating God, he was unable to sleep. And adds the holy master, the greatness of our love of God is known by the desire we have to suffer for him. From this desire, a person may take the measure of his love of God. If the desire to suffer much be very great, the love is great. If little, it is little. And if there be no such desire, then, according to the maxim of St. Philip, there will be no love. So the inability to sleep for that fervent desire. You know, most often what wakes us is that we're hungry or have to use the restroom <laughs> or have indigestion because we overate, uh, but not this burning desire for God within our hearts. And again, this is fostered through a kind of un, unceasing prayer that to, to learn even to go off into our sleep while we are praying. So to be praying the rosary or to be praying something like the Jesus prayer or one of these short exclamations while we are falling asleep so that we enter into our rest with the thought of God on our minds. And it won't be long before the first thought coming to mind in the morning is our, our God and our desire for him as well. And, you know, again, you know, we live in a generation that will fall asleep to the television or, or things such as that rather than with having their thoughts turn towards him. And this final point here is perhaps the most difficult to embrace, the, the, the longing to suffer. Uh, this is actually about, well, okay, maybe I shouldn't say that. I won't tell you who it's about. But uh, a young boy who was asked by his mother, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the mother expected, you know, any of the, usual answers for that. And the young boy had strong religious sensibilities already at that point. And he says to his mother, I want to be a martyr. She said, what? Don't you ever say that again? As if he had said something wrong. And actually, after reading this, we began to see, no, out of the mouth of babes, he, he understood well that if you know, faith is at the heart of things that we, we, we would want to give our, our lives to Christ completely. So what better thing could I desire in this world than to, to be a martyr? And I'm sure no mother would want to, to hear that. But it, you know, for us as Christian men and women, you know, this willingness to witness to Christ even to the point of shedding blood or, or being scorned by our, the culture, rebuked, laughed at. You know, th these are all things that we should willingly endure for the love of Christ and out of desire for him. Well, reading this is just making me think that, you know, sometimes we measure our, like our, our desire to suffer for, to give ourselves for, can be, that can come about when the object or the person is, is something beautiful or good, like this is something worthy of giving my life for, something like that. And I think there could be a point that's reached just in the 
coming to understand in some small way like the beauty and the goodness and the love of God, that there would be a sense that like, okay, if it were ever, if it ever came to that point, I, I could do that. But to see, to do what he said to do and to see him in every single member of his body, especially the most poor and impoverished and broken and sinful, and and to sort of say my love for God isn't complete until I'm I desire nothing more than to die for each and every person I encounter. I mean that that's what it seems to me would make you understand that it's never finished, and like you would never reach a point where you're like, yeah, I could I could die for Christ if if they came with a guillotine in the middle of Pittsburgh, right. you know, like I could do that. It's another thing to say like, but each person that walks in this store today or like each single, that's, and, and that's, that's terrifying. I mean, just understanding what, how many small actions of dying to self that would require every day, just. It's often difficult even just to have a kind word with people that are around us or with whom we work, or not to think the worst, you know, when they do something that's a little bit irritating, you know, or say something to think that, not to think that that's coming from a place, you know, of ugliness, you know, that often we will jump to those kinds of conclusions. So to restrain ourselves in that sense, and, you know, to put that thought, as it were, to death, in order that, you know, we might not detract from the image of our neighbor. You know, it's not like we have to go out and be missionaries in a foreign country. You know, it's often within our own homes that you know we could die to self, to where we could crucify the ego, and it's not an easy thing. Yes. Um, that whole thing reminded me of something else about Saint Philip. Um, that it was it was customary for the uh, the English seminarians who were uh, they were going. Um, going back to their home country, and mo most of them were going to end up as martyrs. And, they, and it was a, it was a custom for them to go um, uh, to go and be blessed by Saint Philip before he before you know they went. And there was one um, apparently there was one young man who was too you know for some reason he was you know too proud to go go. The blessing, yeah, the blessing, and he ended up apostatizing, I think. <laughs> but um, it's sort of, um, you know, but there's, but the thing is, when, you know, so for one thing, for uh, this wasn't, you know, uh, you know, this, this were people, were people that he saw, and, and you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah, all the Jesuits and, going and, off, right? And he saw all these, you know, all, you know, all these, you know, these people every day. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a a, a distance sort of thing. Right. You know, it was something. That, it was something that was. And he would he would um, say to the, you know, to them, you know, so uh, so about you, Flores Martyrum. You know, flowers of martyrdom because the, the English seminarians were going to basically be killed eventually, most of them.
So, um, I guess I was just going to say I like the juxtaposition of um, speaking about the desire for God along with the non-hyperbole, the dramatic statements about dying, burning, and being perfect because, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about exercise and other forms of training and I, and you know, how some people think it's outrageous to be as religious or as spiritual as you would be athletic, but in some ways that also undersells it because with athletes you have goals. This is how much weight I want to lose, this is how many miles I want to run. And I think there's a danger of doing that spiritually, like thinking you have control, thinking you can lay it all out. This is how it's going to progress. This is how it's going to go. And I think that's also where try to be better than the saints, try to be better than Peter and Paul comes from because you can be like, all right, that's my goal, and I probably have 70 years to live, so, you know, if I'm here at 38 and there at 50, I'll make it. And so I guess I'm saying we can't plan, so I think in some ways, yeah, we can use them as models, but trying trying to act like we have control over. There's no control, you know, in terms of what the Spirit will, the gift of the Spirit that is given to us, what that's, where that's going to lead us, or the sanctity that that's going to produce within our hearts. It might not be what we think it is going to be or desire it to be. And uh, so, yes, you're right, you know, that we can't sort of shape it in accord with our own will. But one of the most beautiful litanies is the litany of humility. And there's that one phrase that I might, well, how's it good? Is I might be holy. Um, others that, become holier than I as long as I become as holy as I ought to be. Yeah, that's right. That others might become holier than I as long as I become as holy as I ought to be. Right. So, you know, kind of sense there that it's real, really in God's hands to make us as holy as he, he desires us. Won't we close there with the prayer to St. Philip? We can recite this together. And won't we stand? And then we'll close with the, the hymn, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. Look down from heaven, Holy Father, from the loftiness of that mountain to the lowliness of this valley, from that harbor of quietness and tranquility to this calamitous sea. And now that the darkness of this world appears no more as the shining eyes of thine, from looking clearly into all things, look down and visit, O most diligent keeper, this vineyard which thy right hand planted with so much labor, anxiety, and peril. To thee then we fly, from thee we seek for aid, to thee we give our whole selves unreservedly. Protect thy clients, to thee who heals our leader, rule thine army fighting against the assaults of the devil, to the kindest of pilots, we give out the rudder of our lives, steer this little ship of thine, and place thou art on high, keep us off all of rocks of evil desires, that with thee for our pilot and guide, we may safely come to the work of eternal bliss. Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Oh my God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord.